When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 457. At Midnight Returns, January 6th, the Comedy Central. Midnight, every night, following the Colbert Report and the Daily Show. Well, Daily Show, Colbert follows Daily Show. At Midnight follows Colbert. You know how it works, because those other two shows have been on for buttloads of time. Uh, we're a little, we're, we're a baby show. We're a brand new baby. Tune in on January 6th to smack the naked behind of At Midnight on Comedy Central. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by The Spoils of Babylon, coming to IFC. Uh, so, I don't know if you know uh, Eric John Rosh or not. Hugely talented author. Uh, I've been trying to get this guy on the show. He's impossible to pin down. But uh, I'm just such a huge, huge, huge fan. Author of 57 best-selling novels, including... Uh, the Spoils of Galaxy 7, The Spoils of Grasping for God, The Spoils of the Sahara, The Spoils of singing The Singing Night Squirrel, The Spoils of the Weeping Falcon, The Spoils Beneath the Sea. I mean, you, you, you know the work, you've probably read the work, uh, and we will get him on someday. But until then, you will actually be able to see Eric John Rosh on the tiny small screen uh, in the upcoming epic miniseries of Spoils of Babylon, coming to IFC Thursday, January 9th, 10, 9 central. Also starring in The Spoils of Babylon, this epic, epic television event, Kristen Wiig, Tubby Maguire, Will Ferrell, Jessica Alba, Val Kilmer, Haley Joel Osment, Tim Robbins, Michael Sheen. Come on. How many more names, any one of those names, should draw you to a television event like the Spoils of Babylon and IFC? Thursday, January 9th, 10, 9 central. The premiere night will include two back-to-back episodes. Gorge yourself on the spoils. The spoils of television about the Spoils of Babylon on IFC. To learn more, visit thespoilsofbabylon.com. This episode of the podcast is Moby, who um, I... uh, Well, I'll tell the story on the podcast about how I first discovered Moby in the early 90s when my roommate and I went through a rave phase. Well, I sort of just told the story, but there's more details and it's more colorful and fun. And then he responds, not just me talking in the intro. But, uh... Moby and I became pals after this podcast. What a terrific guy. So uh, his album is called The Innocence, his most recent album that is available wherever you get uh, albums, digibums, digital albums. Uh, I got it on the iTunes. He probably would have given it to me, but I like supporting people. So I got it myself on uh, on the internet tunes. So uh, here we go. And there's podcast number 457 with Moby. Now entering Nerdist.com.
I tried Cloaca as a as a nickname. My girlfriend's yeah. name is Chloe, mm-hmm. and I tried Cloaca as a nickname once. It didn't fly. I like mine, I like Clozone. Clozone's pretty good. Yeah. Clojo. Maybe I'll call her Cloby from now on. I'll just smash it. That rhymes with Moby, who's sitting before us. Hi. Welcome. So we're talking about confusing people's names? Yes. Okay, so here's... I do that quite a lot. I think I have some weird form of almost like name dyslexia. Okay. The worst... Oh, and it even... It hurts me to even think about it. I was on tour, and it was the last show of a tour. And so all of my friends were there, and family members, and record company, and management. So about 30 people backstage, and my new girlfriend came. And I stopped and I said, everybody, everybody, meet Christy. And I was like, hi. And, and there was this pause and she said, my, my, my name's Katie. Oh! And it was so, it wasn't just that I had confused her name with someone with the name of my ex-girlfriend. Oh. But in front, that I'd stopped everyone that I'd, so in front of 30 or 40 people, yeah, it was, yep. How did you recover from that? And this makes me think that there's a word that's missing from the English language when you're so uncomfortable that, like, your organs clench up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's almost like your spleen starts to, like, get small and atrophied. Spleen, I think it's called spleen asthma. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm looking at you guys right now and you're having that vicarious experience. Like you're because yeah. that is one of those... Showing up to class with no clothes on type of nightmares or, hey, you're about to perform on a show, but you don't know what the set list is and everyone's looking at you. That is really one of those nightmarish moments. Jonah, I mean, Jonah asked, but how did you recover from that? Uh, I recovered this. Well, I stopped drinking about five years ago, but Uh this was back when I drank. And I think I recovered by blaming alcohol, (laughs) like by saying like, oh, I was kind of drunk. And then I recovered by just drinking more. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, then, like, it was like, you know, sort of to paraphrase Homer Simpson, it was like the cause and the solution to my problem. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you have to ply her with some alcohol so that yeah. it takes the edge off, yeah. and then and then everything's fine. Did you call me ex girlfriend's name? No, you were pretty wasted last night, though. You were hearing stuff. You said that I did that, but I never did that. You were you were you were really hammered. Yeah, you were really fucked. It is, it is because I've been I've been sober for ten years, and it is it is that kind of interesting to. Uh, have to just take responsibility for everything you do, you know, which I kind of like, but at the same time, I had forgotten, oh, yeah, there was a time where you could just throw that in the booze bin and go, oh, that was alcohol. And I still have a lot of things in the booze bin, meaning I will encounter people, like, I'll be out and someone will come up to me saying, like, oh, hey, really nice to see you again. It's like, I I don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. And... And it's not even like self-involved narcissistic public figure stuff. It's literally that like bits of my brain have been scooped out by liquor. Oh, man. And they're just gone. So like – and people try and like refresh my memory and say, oh, I was at your apartment like 10 years ago. We had this crazy party and we were up until 8 o'clock in the morning. I was like, I, I did that a lot and I don't – I just, just don't remember. Eesh. So – well. I, the first time that I was ever – that I had ever heard of you was in like 91 or 2 – my roommate and I, uh, a young, uh, a young actor by the name of Will Wheaton, uh, and I were obsessed with going to raves. We were obsessed. Will Wheaton? Yeah, yeah, As yeah. In yeah. Next gen. Program? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that guy. So Will. Hmm. So Will and I uh, were these young rave teens who would go to warehouse raves. Will became obsessed with DJing. Obsessed, and he. Uh, 
fortunately or unfortunately had the disposable income to just buy a bunch of DJ equipment. Mm -hmm. And so the first time that I, and I still love the song, and I don't know if you remember it, but I think it was just called Ah. Oh, there was one song called Ah, Ah. Ah, Ah, yeah. (laughs) And it was just this really... That's pretty much the gist of it. Yeah. That's the whole song. <laughs> yeah. And then there, a voice came in, which may have been yours, just going, ah. I actually don't know who the voice was. Because back in those days, and even now to an extent, I would just sample a bunch of things yeah. and never write down the names of what I sampled. And so, because it's this sort of the ethos of asking for forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And so that's been my approach in sampling. Like, just sample a whole bunch of stuff. And if you get sued, well, that's okay. It means you got caught. <laughs> the odd <laughs> guy's going to be like, that was my voice. I yeah. did not approve. <laughs> um, um, uh. and, it, and it has happened. Like, on the album that I made called Play, there's a song called Porcelain. Yes. And I had a really obscure sample. Like, a painfully obscure sample from an old soundtrack from the 60s and I sampled it, pitched it down and played it backwards. And it turns out there is a guy in England who's like a train spotter for samples. <gasps> his his hobby, and I want to find this person and kill him, <laughs> his hobby is listening to records, finding obscure samples, finding them and contacting the record company. Wow. So literally he contacted the record company and the record company then sued me and the record company actually admitted to me. They're like, there's no way we would have ever found this. They're wow. like, we didn't Does even. Does he get a cut? Like a he doesn't get fee? a cut. It's just, it's his public service. And that's his hobby. And that's what he does. Sort and of like, like the Wikipedia editors where they just, yeah. they just, it's something yeah. they want to do for the humanity. And in this case, like it was so obscure. And just like the fact that it would have like languished in obscurity had he not taken it upon himself to find it. Was it in the final version of Porcelain or did you have yeah, to cut the, it? Yeah, it's the, the string sample. Oh, oh yeah, it's reverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Played yeah. backwards, pitched down from an obscure... Uh, yeah, so... That still hurts. How the fuck did that guy figure that but out? at the same time, I mean, what am I complaining? I'm basically complaining about the fact that I stole something and got caught. <laughs> and then get away with it. <laughs> you know, so, like, I have nothing to complain On about. On an album but, that sold, like, 8 million copies. Yeah, so... <laughs> I'm not complaining. I'm just annoyed. But I can understand that. So my my connect my sort of um, empathy with you with this sort of the uh, the throwing things into the booze bin is I I remember very specifically that that culture was very much about just raw feeling good things mm-hmm. where it was just you know the people it's called ecstasy Chris I know people well, I never yeah. did ecstasy but I but I, really? I just I just got really drunk yeah no I was terrified of doing drugs um, and so uh, and so I, I but you'd get really drunk but then you would just see people fucking hanging onto these massive speakers doing incalculable ear damage mm-hmm. but it just like they, it was just like their molecules were just they could just feel all their molecules vibrating Yep. The funny thing is, during that period, I was sober. So I had like eight years sobriety, followed by about 13 years non-sobriety. So like the height of the rave period, like 90, 91, 92, 93, I was completely sober. So I remember everything from Were then. Were you still just straight edge from being... I had... Like... Well, I'd been... When I was a very confused straight edge. Yeah. When I was in high school, I was a straight edge punk rocker, but I also drank a lot. Okay. Yeah, Meaning yeah. I would go to see Minor Threat and put the X on the back of my hand and then after the show, go out and get drunk. Best of both worlds, it seems. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, this seems consistent to Why me. Why does like, no yeah. one do this? Uh, yeah. Like, I'm at the Minor Threat show, and I'm not drinking. 
<laughs> and then I would go out afterwards and get drunk. Yeah, yeah, so you seem cool to the kids at the show. Yeah. And then you go and hang out with the actual cool kids. It seems completely <laughs> consistent. Yeah. Um, but then, so I'd stopped drinking for about eight years, and that was during that rave scene that you and Will Wheaton were a part of. Yes. And... Uh, so, but that, that <laughs> so that, but the joy that you're describing that is, like, it is kind of fascinating because you're right. That was the like the defining ethos of that scene was simply joy. It almost wasn't even hedonistic. Like there wasn't. It wasn't like like you think of like the hair metal scene, and it was like maybe celebratory, but it was all about like sex and drugs Access. and whatever. And like yeah. the rave scene was just about joy. Yeah. I never really thought of it that way. Yeah, just a bunch of people basically descend on a warehouse and they put giant speakers and bring you or like mm-hmm. DJ Dan or someone, and, and and then you guys and and then you would just stand there and just feel it. Just, <laughs> to make another Star Trek reference, mm-hmm. it was like getting caught in the ribbon of the Nexus, basically, where you were just completely. It was just completely pleasurable. You should have tried ecstasy then, because I wouldn't have been able to handle it. You could just get. I don't have the brain for. I don't have the brain for it. I would have fucking the 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 first two minutes that I would have started to feel something weird happening with my body that I couldn't identify. I would have fucking torn my skin off. See, there's a way of dealing with that, and I'm not suggesting that you try <laughs> ecstasy. See. <laughs> And I'm not advocating ecstasy use, but if you combine it with alcohol, oh, I didn't okay. see what the liquor because what the alcohol does it sort of like I don't know attenuates the anxiety, <laughs> and then the ecstasy kicks in, and it's the greatest feeling I've ever had in my entire life. The fucking best. It's so good. Like, like everything I rem- is great. I remember one day after doing a lot of ecstasy, not that terrible ecstasy hangover. They call them e-holes or something like that? Or yeah, uh, like the next yeah. day where like everything's gray and hurts. Yeah, it's not fun. And you can't remember anything. Like literally you're out, <laughs> you're having brunch and you're like reaching for a fork and you're like, I, I know that's metal. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. And I remember thinking to myself like, if there, and I, I'm, I have a weird spiritual life, but I just remember thinking like, if there's a truly benign God why don't we feel like we're on ecstasy from the time we're born until the time we die? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's that it's that good. Like an omniscient, oh, all-powerful God. Couldn't God just create us with a neurochemistry where we're always in a state of joy? And people are like, oh, but then you'd never make art. I was like, so what? You know, like you'd, <laughs> I'd be happy all the time. You'd be happy. Yeah. So, you wouldn't need art. Yeah. <laughs> No one would need art or stimulation. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't. Than... You wouldn't have to express anything and try to figure shit out because you would yeah. just have it all figured yeah. out, and it yeah. would be everything would be awesome all the time. Yeah, but... I remember uh, the, the kids I knew that uh, like I was a straight edge kid, and like you know the the rave kids I knew in high school would take an ecstasy, and I, I hate it. I, like it, you know, it made mm-hmm. me. I said like I don't I don't want to listen to a type of music that's so closely associated, and I also hated reggae because I was just like reggae is weed, uh, yeah. you know, or the uh, electronic music is ecstasy, and I just it made me resent all that stuff. And it wasn't until I was in my twenties where I just I was like, well, let's see what the hubbub is all about. And uh, then I was like, fucking hey, this is they get they had it, they had it. Huh? <laughs> I was wrong. I was the guy. I was I was straight edge and listened to punk, and I was bored and I had nothing to do, so I would tip over well, porta potties or make you know fucking messes or graffiti. Well, I too have spent a lot of my life being wrong. Wrong in that way, yeah. Like I decided at one point that I hated Prince. This is like, but this is a long time. It was like the mid '80s, and I was like, oh, Prince, and it's too mainstream. And then I had a girlfriend who loved Prince, and she got me to watch Purple Rain, and I was like, this is great. <laughs> yes. Like, why am I being such a douchebag? Like, yeah. why have I decided preemptively that I don't like stuff? Like, what? It's almost like 
this hierarchy of joy, like the joy of hating things, for me, I thought was so much greater than the joy of liking mainstream yeah. things. And then I just realized like Terminator 2, Star Trek Next Generation, mm -hmm. Prince, things that like I had rejected because they were too mainstream. Yeah. But they're great. That's the worst side effect of punk, and I've said that before. Yeah. It's like that's the thing when, like, punk, you, you, you go, no, it has to be this way, and if it's not this way, it sucks. If it's on the radio, and it's, say, it's, do you like the song? Yeah, I love it. It's on the radio. Never mind. It fucking blows. Yeah, you know, that's a weird Some friends thing. and I started, because we all grew up in the hardcore scene, then we started a fake hardcore band called The Pork Guys, <laughs> and we had a song called Seven Inch Sellout, <laughs> the, the, the premise being that if you've made a seven inch, you've sold out. Yeah, to even like, like go as far to record <laughs> something. Yeah. The like and at the the least amount of work you can do. Yeah. That a seven inch at that time was probably cheaper than a tape. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the idea of you want to be special or you want to feel special and, and if you have something in common with the lowest common denominator, then that makes you one of the lowest common denominator and you're therefore not special anymore. And so you can't, Yeah, it, you don't, you know, I, but I think as you start to get older, you're just going to go, hey, who fucking gives a shit? You know, like, I like what I like. Some things are mainstream. Some things aren't mainstream. I just like what I, then you get more yeah. comfortable. I think getting more comfortable with yourself dissipates a lot of that. Yes, because you don't need a thing to have an identity anymore. Like, that's what I thought, thought about Straight Edge when I was a kid. I was like, mm -hmm. well, it gives me a thing. I can say I am. Oh, I've had lots of things. Yeah. <laughs> I was a vegan, am a vegan. I was an atheist, and I was a Christian, uh, punk rocker, then a raver. So I've always had a thing. Yeah. And then at, over time, you sort of ask yourself, like, why are these things so important to me? Like, why is it so important that I belong to this exclusionary cult? Yeah. You know, why do I go hang out with my like straight edge vegan friends and judge everyone else? And then you look at everyone else and they're actually having a good time. Yeah. 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 I have a theory on that, which is that um, I, I think we do it as I, I think we like to have like a prefab belief system because it just makes dealing with life easier because mm -hmm. you can go it, it, rather than we, we just don't have the energy to process especially with as much data as we were processing yeah. at all times now to every single situation well i'm gonna weigh all the options and i'm gonna so, see this and this is it. it's just to have a go well i believe this so that's this is probably falls well, into this and category. if you think of it from an evolutionary perspective like it's like we have billion or let's we'll say 450 million years of sort of compartmentalization being rewarded like i sometimes think let's go back 500,000 years ago and some proto-humans are on the plains of the serengeti and there's one proto-human who's capable of compartmentalizing, another human being isn't. The one proto-human looks at a lion and says, that's a lion, run away from it. And the other proto-human says, actually, it's a very complex being. <laughs> and there's subtlety and nuance to it. And to just reduce it to saying that it's a lion is really doing it a disservice. At that point, that person gets eaten and their genetic line, <laughs> and their genetic line ends. Whereas the person who compartmentalizes runs away to have sex and make babies. So you end up with us who are just like hardwired to compartmentalize. Yeah. yeah I, well, we have to also because I, I, I think that, um, you know, the layering of our brain is there's a very primitive part of the brain and then there's a higher part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And one of them has to process things that it doesn't quite understand. And so that's where we, I think that's where we sort of get I mean, this is This is, because normally you guys like for guess to try and be funny right no 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 we like we just talk oh, anything. We just, it's okay. anything you want yeah, because yeah. brain architecture is one of my i'm, I'm fascinated by it yeah because i mean in a very very general sense and i don't want to be pedantic but you are describing there's like the lizard brain yes which is that 
automatic response. The, like the limbic system. Yeah. The limbic system is actually on top of the lizard brain. So the, lim- the limbic system is more th- what governs emotion. So th- the way you can think of it is like the lizard brain, which is every species has it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, crocodiles have a lizard brain. We have a lizard brain. And on top of that is the limbic system, um, which is like us and other mammals, which is what sort of bonds us to other mammals or other people, yeah. ideally. And then on top of that would be like the prefrontal cortex, which is the executive function. And the funny thing is they can all – they like – the limbic – I mean the sort of like the amygdala, the, the core brain, the lizard brain is the one that has that immediate response. But it can actually take signals from the executive function. You know, So like if you want to stab someone and then like your immediate response is, I want to stab this person. And the executive function says, you know what? Perhaps you shouldn't. <laughs> you know? And then the limbic system says, let's just be friends with them. Yeah. So what do you, what is it that fascinates you so much about the I mean what what is what do you want to do with this information like what or is it just is it just like a, ho- a hobby to have a uh, I mean not to sound too much like a self-involved new age southern california resident but <laughs> to just have a better understanding of who we are and not to be as ruled by our sort of like automatic cognitions as we oftentimes are mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I mean cuz every uh, again I'm stating the obvious but Everything is in our brains. Like nothing exists outside of our cognition. You know, and we tend to give the rest of the world so much credit, like saying like there is this physical world out there and it has so much power and so many inherent characteristics and it just doesn't. Like everything is cognition. Because essentially everything is def- – our realities are defined by our perceptions. Of, yeah. Yeah. And all we have is our like really flawed weird sense organs that are kind of amazing like sight and sense, touch, etc., but everything ultimately resides in our little brains. And so it seems like there's no better study than trying to understand what our brains actually do. And what have you learned so far? Oh, so I was a philosophy <laughs> major, by the <laughs> Me way. Too, yeah. Oh, you were? Yeah. Where'd you go to school? Uh, well, I went to UConn uh-huh. and then SUNY Purchase, State okay. University of New York at Purchase. I never quite graduated. Yeah, I was close, and then I mm-hmm. left school to go work for MTV. But I didn't uh, even go to school, so <laughs> <laughs> good for you. Yeah. Um, but there is, I mean, because what you're just what we're talking about is sort of like you know when Descartes said "cogito ergo sum." Like, yes, I yes, think yes. therefore I, I, think I am. Therefore I am. Mm-hmm. What had led him to do that is he had doubted everything. You know, like he was like, I don't trust my sense perception. You know, like because and and so I don't have any objective understanding of the world. And then at the end of it, the only thing he said he couldn't doubt was that he was doubting. So it's like, I think, therefore, I am, meaning, like, therefore, if I'm thinking, there must be an existence here. Right. Um, And then he extrapolated and he said, well, if there's a benign God, God wouldn't lie to me. So clearly the world is as it seems to be, which is kind of a stretch. (laughs) (laughs) And then he also said, if there was a benign God, we would just feel like we were doing ecstasy all all the time. time. Yeah. Um, And then, as you know, then, of course, along came the existentialists who said Descartes was wrong. We can think beyond that. We have no knowledge of anything. You know, everything we perceive is a distortion. And to an extent, that's true. And then the question becomes, what do you do with that knowledge? Like if, if we understand that all of our perception is distorted and the universe bears no – our perception of the universe bears no relation to what it actually is, do we kill ourselves? Do we just get drunk? Or do we just sort of say, oh, that's part of the human condition – is having no objective understanding of what the universe might actually be. Uh, I like that option. Yeah. I like that option a lot. But it is, isn't it fascinating that essentially we're six billion distorted perceptions, 
but we can still somehow cluster together to find common ground. I mean, you know, it's like the uh, that kind of thing. Like, well, how do I know that this is a table that you're seeing and this is a table that I'm seeing? But we both somehow agree that this is a table and that it's, you know, of some earth tone. It's like naive subjectivism. It is. It yeah. is. It is. That we, like- we, we basically form these basic unspoken agreements with each other that we all agree that the world is generally this yeah. kind of thing. But I still don't know what you perceive it as. Yeah. And whether, I mean, none of you might actually exist. <laughs> oh, God, that'd be a relief. That's called solipsism. Yeah. <laughs> if you're saying that we don't, like, if it's one... possible. It's possible. Yeah. Um, so, this is what I spend most of my time thinking about, for better or worse. It does sort of drive you crazy after a while. Well, yeah, because you, there's no... It, it really is, you know, uh, the pursuit of philosophy is really the, I, I feel like, the like a cognitive process. It's There's no... There's not going to be a, aha, it's this, you know, it really is just about the process. Can that get you really, like, do those roads lead towards just being a nihilist? If when you get they to can. a place where you just go, well, if n- no one's really sure what everyone else is doing and we're not, none of us are sure what exists and what doesn't, uh, then nothing will matter. And therefore, or, or that's, you, what, that's what he was saying yeah, before, yeah. like one of the three options. Or you yeah. just defer back to this, like, naive subjectivism, which is like, say like, oh, I understand that ice cream doesn't technically have any fixed identity as ice cream, but it still tastes nice. Yeah. You know, like I might look at my flat screen TV and say like, wow, there's, let's say, a few hundred million pixels there, each one doing something weird that I don't understand, but still I like watching Family yeah. Guy. So, but, <laughs> you know. so everything is nothing, but nothing is all we have. Yeah, and might as well just sort of enjoy it while we're here. And like at the very least, almost like take like a sort of quasi-Hippocratic oath or just say, like, just do no harm, try and be nice to people. And also, like, recognizing that it seems like all humans, we're all sort of in the same boat in that we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. You know, and we're all confused. We're all baffled. So why not just sort of, like, be nice to other humans in the process? Because there's a good chance the other humans are actually a little more confused than you are. Yeah. So yeah. as someone who said that, you know, you said you've tried a bunch of different identities and you know atheist and christian and you referred to being like you said you had this weird spirituality was there something did you find something in any of that which helped kind give it meaning is that what you meant by weird spirituality yeah i guess it's hmm it's a really good question and I'm distracted by the painting behind oh. you, the superhero <laughs> painting. Yes, yes, I know, yes. I know that podcasts are a visual medium. Um, <laughs> there's a painting. They just assumed of, we look we look that buff, and I'm going to let them keep on assuming. It's, it's like, do you know Jake Fogelness? Of course, yeah. very well. Jake's great. Yeah. So Jake's an old friend of mine, and um, so he tweeted the other day something about. He was like, he was like, do the majority of you people know that I'm like five foot five and really skinny <laughs> and like. <laughs> So that, yeah, like public perception. So he needs a superhero icon avatar like you guys yeah. to put on a, to put on the Sirius XM homepage. Yeah, yeah so there was there was it was funny. He uh, there was a picture he tweeted I think of just us standing next to each other, and then people were just responding was like, I don't know if Jake's really tiny or Jonah's insanely huge. Yeah, or, but both but are yeah. true. Yeah, that's exactly. Both, yeah. I said it's just an odd <laughs> odd side by um, side. So so going so going back to your sure. your question, basically, it's. <clears throat> Looking at like all these choices, like straight edge, vegan, punk rock, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the question becomes not have I made a good choice, but why, what led me to make the choice? You know, we were sort of talking about that earlier. Yeah. And that's 
to me a much more interesting question than like analyzing the choice itself, but saying like what compels me to make that choice? You know, if that makes any sense. Sure. Like what, like where is it really coming from? And usually, at least in my case, and I think a lot of people's cases are sort of like controlling choices. They all come from a place of insecurity and fear. Sure. You know, like if I can make the right choice, suddenly everything will make sense and the world will be better and I won't feel like shit. It's <laughs> yeah. really interesting to hear you describe it that way because it's essentially, I, I don't know, for some reason I immediately likened it to astrophysics and it's like, well, you know, we can't see necessarily that there is a, you know, a, st- a star with orbiting planets, but but they measure the wobble. Yeah. They essentially are measuring the effect that those things have and then they deduce, well, that body, that must be there because otherwise why would, why would this be yeah. happening as, mm-hmm. as an effect? Yep. So that's kind of an interesting way to – I'd never thought about doing that way because we're so – I think we're so result-oriented that asking like, well, why do I do this or why – how did I get here? I think those are questions a lot of people don't normally don't normally ask. Yeah. Well, I – so sort of to that end, I had a, a rule – not a rule, but a, a sort of a practice with my ex-girlfriend – um, whenever we argued, I gave her these two questions that immediately ended any argument. And all she had to do was ask me these questions. And I, oh, sometimes it drove me crazy. All she had to do is say, like, what's your role in it and what's really going on? And I was like, oh, because I want it to be her fault. I want to blame something. <laughs> and I was like, the truth is those are the only valid questions I could ever ask myself. Like, what's my role in it and what's actually going on? Yeah. You know, and usually, like, if I'm, like... Not again, not to sound like a Southern California New Age crazy person, but like there's almost like there's the hard emotions of like anger, defensiveness, bitterness, et cetera. And then underneath it, if I'm willing to look at it, it's sort of like slightly more vulnerable emotions of like fear, insecurity. But like the angry emotions are so much more seductive. You well, know? they're also the protective guard dog. Yeah. Because the stuff, the gushy stuff down here can hurt. Yeah. And so it's, you know, I, 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 I'm not great at it, but I have a version of that, which is in the midst of a fight, if you go, well, what's my goal? Yeah. Because at a certain point, you just fight to fight. Um, just weird biological, which I'm sure goes back to, you know, lizard brainstem um, physiology. But, uh, but and then when you go, well, what's my goal here? Is my goal really to obliterate this other person with words? Mm-hmm. Or is my goal to get along and try to figure it out and gain an understanding? And then when you start, when you start getting like upper level brained about it, then you like, start to feel that other stuff kind yeah. of deflate. Go, oh, yeah, my goal is not to hurt this person's feelings because yeah. I care about them. Well, when I'm arguing, my goal is to hurt the other person's feelings. <laughs> and I want them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're wrong and I'm right <laughs> and I want them to sort of like bow down in humility sure. to my supreme rightness <laughs> and then at the end of it I don't have any friends right <laughs> you know you also shouldn't go on the internet yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that's one thing I had to like like why is it so important like if you're talking about like the transparency of the international monetary fund with someone and you have like a pro con like who cares right like why am I arguing it like I'm like fighting as if I'm like fighting to get insulin for my sick child or something, and, like I'm <laughs> defending my position. Like at the end of the day, who cares? Like even if it's a really important opinion, like it's just an opinion, it's just right. words and thoughts. And unless you're, I don't know, 
holding office in some legislative body, there's a good chance that our opinions and thoughts don't really matter that much. Yeah. Well, I feel so, like- so much so that we're willing to like sacrifice friendship, health, well-being to prove the primacy of our ideas. Well, yeah, there, what's, what's the, there, there, is that, there is the sort of biological thing that we will, we will argue to protect our points even in the face of evidence that what we believe is false. Yeah. Um, because it's, you know, I, I guess it's just that, it's sort of that similar idea of like, I, you know, that goes along with compartmentalizing things of like, no, I'm standing my ground so that I can make sure that my genes survive or, or something. Yep. And and so we will argue, even even at a certain point when in the back of our head we go, I'll go, oh, she's kind of got you on that point. I don't care. You yeah. know, like you still. Yeah, I almost like to have in my, my brain a laundry list of the stupidest arguments I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> One of my best was with an uh, with an ex-girlfriend it's about 20 some odd years ago we had this huge argument <laughs> and it almost led us to break up and the argument was whether people would be happier living underground or above ground <laughs> that was that yeah <laughs> literally for about 90 minutes both of us furious at each other my point of view was that people would be happier living underground because above ground would then be nature. And she was like, yeah, but then people would be living underground and they'd be very unhappy. I was like, yeah, but then they'd have nature. Instead of having like urban environments above ground, you'd have the urban environment underground and nature above ground. Neither one of us was right. She was actually way more right than I was because clearly people don't want to live underground. <laughs> That's right, because we don't. But I was convinced, like, I mean, like we were literally on the edge of breaking up because we disagreed with each other wow. so much. Do you think that, that that underscored a much deeper issue in the relationship or was that an isolated incident? I think it underscored a much deeper issue with me is that like deep down I'm kind of an asshole. <laughs> and like and I like and I can't see that I'm wrong even when I'm wrong. But at least you know that though. But I but luckily I've been wrong so many times that now it's really hard for me to ever think that I'm right. Oh, right. I think of all those times or even like, again, what you're saying, like, even when I've been right, it's like to what end? Right. Like, who, like, like, so you're right and you lose a friend or so you're right and you end a relationship. Like, I'd rather be wrong and have friends and good relationships than be right and sit alone by myself on sure. my mid-century couch, you know. <laughs> <laughs> With yeah. what I imagine is a very nice view of the city. I've got a nice view of the city. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I saw <clears throat> did you do something in a magazine or something it was like a, you gave a tour of your house it was uh, New York Times was it New York Times yeah. really lovely thanks it's it's a, was it really sort of important for you to that, cuz that's what I in Los Angeles finding a place cuz everything's just so fucking crowded Mm-hmm. But there are places where you can find a little bit of peaceful, but still feel connected to the city. Well, yeah. how long have you guys lived here? Twenty-five years. I've been wow. here twelve years. Okay, because I've been here about three years, and I'm still trying to figure it out. Like I've been here hundreds of times for work, but the experience of living here really is unlike living in any other city in the world. Um, the vastness, the sprawl, and just the weirdness. Like there's absolutely no cohesion here. No, there's no, there's no identity. And there's no center. Yeah. It's just out That's, there. You know, because, but, you know, Honolulu is a lot like that, which is you know, where I grew up. So it's like, it's it's a very similar city where it just kind of just keeps going. And then, like, there's no separation between, well, you're in this town now, but where's this? Where's that other town? Well, it's just that starts across the street. Yeah. And it doesn't look like there's any different. That, that I, I find that it's like in any city, you can you can do that to Manhattan, too. 
where it's, you know, everyone's like, oh, you live in Manhattan. But, like, Manhattan is only really the people who live there and work there are relegated to their own little neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And there's no big difference from, like, the the East Village to the West. Yeah, there is, but not to a blind eye. I'm dumb. Someone just explained to me what Tribeca meant. Oh, there's some good acronyms. Yeah, do you know what it means? No. Triangle below canal. The triangle below canal. Because it's all shit's tried. It's the tip of the island. So I fucking had no idea. Dumbo? Down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. Yep. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I was born in New York. <laughs> so you, do, you know all the you know all the acronyms. Yeah, uh, but I I love I love Los Angeles because it's just you know it's um, if you just take uh, you know the idea of New York where it's just like it's a, all, a bunch of mashed together neighborhoods, but mm-hmm. just you know smash it down and spread it out, and it's the yeah. it's the same thing. Instead of apartment buildings, each apartment is a house, and then it just kind of spreads it out. And and that is one of the wonderful things is that like in almost any other big city, when people meet up to be social, they meet up. In public, because they all like in New York, like everyone lives in tiny, tiny little apartments that are like far flung and not near each other. Whereas here, people, you live in a house. And so like when you socialize, you go to someone's house and like you sit in the backyard and you pet the dog and there's something (laughs) kind of like sort of like humble and endearing about that. It's uh, basically, it's, you can live the suburban life in a city yeah. in Los Angeles. You could, the idea of the, you know, the suburbs used to be, oh, you get out of this, you're so far away from the city, everyone's just hanging out in their houses and off the interstate. But this is, you're still in the middle of a city. You can hang out in that house and go, oh, it's time to go somewhere. And you're, you're right there. Yep. Yeah. I, lo- I love Los Angeles. I'm a big fan of it. It is so baffling. And also, I mean, like, like if I look at it objectively, and it's one of the reasons I moved here, and I'm just saying objective, insofar as I can be objective, it's a city that's warm in the winter that's primarily filled with weird artists, writers, musicians, and comedians with tons of nature and some of the most disparate, interesting architecture on the planet. Yeah. Like, it, it's sort of, objectively speaking, it's paradise. It's but a- it's also a weird dystopian place yeah. <laughs> where it takes two hours to get from one end of the city to the other. And... But that's only if you're, I mean, it takes a long time to go from one side of New York to the other. Depends yeah. on where you're going. You know, uh, I, I, I think of LA as the largest artistic community in the world. And almost you, in history. Yeah. Like, I don't know that there's Everybody ever... moves here. Everybody, like not everybody, but just in it, sheer, the sheer vastness of it. Yeah. yeah. It's a, you know, you just, if you're on, you know, this side of the Mississippi and you are a kid in a town that does screen printing or art or comedy yeah. or, you know, and you want to do this, is everyone just kind of moves here? Like, oh my, I, like I have friends that just do all kinds of different artistic endeavors and it's, you know, they, they're all from different towns. Yep. And everyone ends up here and people have the space, especially because other cities become so prohibitively expensive. I feel like people move here and they can still have, like artists can still have studios. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, a store like this in New York, this couldn't exist, really. No. Like oh, no, no, no. Meltdown? Yeah, no. Meltdown, it's too big. I mean... It would be, it would be, it would be tight and vertical. Yeah. It'd be, like, three floors. Yeah. If it even existed. I mean, like, instead, this would be, like, a Bank of America ATM center and a nail <laughs> salon and... There'd be a Starbucks yeah. the next, <clears throat> next door. Yeah, was it Forbidden Planet? It's, like, the biggest comic book store in New York, right? And I believe it's gone. Oh, St. Mark's still around? Midtown Comics is still there. I know that there are still a few comic places, but I know that, like, slowly over time, all the interesting things in Manhattan are disappearing. Well, Pat Oswald had made this interesting point about Los Angeles where he's like, L.A. is not a beautiful city. When people say, you know, it's really beautiful here, they're looking at the sky because it's always blue. But when you actually look at most of the buildings in Los Angeles, they're really ugly because L.A. grew so fast... Yeah. In a in a very short period of time, in the 60s, 70s, you know, 
that a lot it's just it's just a lot of like gross stucco buildings in most of the city. Yeah, yeah. it's like it's like there was enough financial incentive to cut down trees and build something. Yeah. But there wasn't enough financial incentive to build anything really nice. No, yeah. or, or or plan any, or plan it. It was like, just fucking build that way. Put that over there if yeah. I don't give a yeah. shit. And yeah. that's the thing. That's so Hawaii is very similar. When, like, you know, when it was gearing up to be a state, you know, everyone just, the, the idea that it would become part of the union would be so many more regulations. And so I lived in a few apartment buildings that were just these three-story, made out of cinder blocks and wood. That's like most of the apartment buildings mm-hmm. in Hawaii. It's just, it was the same thing out here. Just like, get it up, get it up, hurry up. You know, just get it so done. Some people say like, oh, it's, you know, it's be- Honolulu's beautiful. They're like, oh, because you got the water and, and the, the sky and, and the mountains. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, you know, I, like, Los Angeles, I think is, I think is very pretty. And, you know, anytime you just look at one thing, it's never going to be, you know. There are pockets that are really pretty. You'll, you'll find, mm-hmm. you'll find a street where you're like, oh, all these gorgeous craftsman houses that were built in the 20s. But even like right around here, it's sort of, because I, I Maybe I shouldn't admit this in public, but I have an architecture blog. Um, That's amazing. That's awesome. I think it's called Los An- Moby Los Angeles Architecture. I'm not sure. It's I basically I drive around, take pictures of buildings. Yeah. Not just like the beautiful buildings, but like the ugly buildings, the random buildings, like the Bauhaus KFC on Western. <laughs> I don't think I know the Bauhaus oh, KFC. I need to go real... find. I mean, Western that whole area, like Western Beverly. And going east on Beverly, um, there's so much random stuff there. Yeah, you got historic Filipino town. And, and yeah. little Bangladesh. And then Koreatown is smashed and near there. Koreatown has got a lot of great buildings. Amazing. A lot of gorgeous yeah. buildings. And what's weird is that like even like, okay, so we're sitting like Sunset Boulevard where we are. It's not that attractive. It yeah. should be because it's called Sunset. Like Sunset's beautiful, but like it's, it's, it's dumpy. Literally 50 feet in either direction are beautiful houses. Yes. Like how that exists, like it, in most every every other place in the world, there's cohesion. Where like if there are beautiful houses that sell for millions of dollars, usually what's adjacent to it is pretty nice. Whereas yeah. here, like literally if you go 100 feet that way, you'd have to spend a million dollars to buy a house. And then you walk down to Sunset and you can go to the fetish collection across <laughs> the street. Well, know? because like, I, I think, you know, this might encapsulate what the underlying theme of Los Angeles is, which is, you know, probably relatively self-centered. But uh, there are houses on 50 feet either side of Sunset Boulevard. This was probably a really nice street with trees. And at some point, someone Mm -hmm. was like, I need to put something there. Fuck that. And they just put it up and didn't really think about it. When we we were going through LAX the other night, um, I, I realized for the first time that LAX is the perfect airport to represent Los Angeles because it is the worst airport in the country. Yeah. By, it's by, one, yeah, I would say it's the, certainly the worst and most baffling big airport. But I'm, and I apologize for interrupting. No, please do. By the way, what I used to say was I don't mean to interrupt. But then I realized if I'm interrupting, why am I saying I don't mean to interrupt? So now I just try to say. No, that's apologize. fine. Please interrupt. Please, 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 please. Um, but there is, because I spend a lot of time in LAX. Yeah. There's something sort of like functional and provincial about it. You know, the fact that you can drive to your little terminal and none of the terminals are very nice, nor do they work very well. But after a while, there's like, it's kind of endearing. Like it just, <laughs> like it's sort of like, I'm trying to think of like a good slogan that would fit like LA and LAX. It's kind of like, eh, it's okay. <laughs> you know, like. Hey, it gets the job done. Yeah, like, Ish. We're, like we're, we're, we're trying. Yeah. yeah, sort of. We didn't have a lot Sometimes. of time. Yeah. yeah, but I the we put re- up that old cool uh, watchtower. That's about it. But the reason <laughs> that I the reason I think it represents Los Angeles is because it's an airport that 
at one time probably made sense when there were less people and there was yeah. le- you know like oh, okay it's very it's a very simple u-shaped design and you know but then other they just sort of built around it and didn't go maybe we should figure out a way to tie all this together and have an easy way to get between the terminals. And, and it's, so to me, it just represents Los Angeles of like, ah, just start building in that direction. Oh, the valley. Yeah, there's tons of room there. Just yeah. fucking yeah. put up yeah. a bunch of shit there and we'll figure it out. It, you know what it is? That's what it is. Los Angeles, the slogan in LAX is, we'll figure it out later. Yeah, yeah. But they never figure and, it out. And I think in the back of everyone's mind is this understanding that like nature's not going to let stuff stay around too long. You know, like like <laughs> like whenever you're building something like yeah, it's probably going to fall down in an earthquake. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. It'll it'll get burn down. Yeah. Don't worry about it. We'll you deal know, with like, it on we'll deal yeah. with it on the We'll get a good the, 50 the, years out of it. The next yeah. go around. We'll build this shitty building, but when we make it big in this town, we're going to get a nicer yeah. building. Now, I actually <laughs> flew across the aisle from you once on a Virgin America flight. And and I, uh, because I travel so much, I had my own rituals. And so when I can tell that someone is a seasoned traveler, I observe their rituals. Uh-oh. And the ritual, <laughs> they were good rituals, actually. You took your shoes off, and you put a pillow on the ground, and you put your feet on the pillow. I don't have very long legs, yeah. <laughs> but it was comfortable. Like, I'd never thought to do that before, just put my feet on a pillow and then you had an you had an iPad and you played Scrabble. You, you I, maybe, or I'm, I'm trying to think. Maybe I was doing something cooler. But <laughs> probably not. What are some other rituals that you have when you're traveling? I'm always trying to find. I'm always trying to streamline the process because it it well, I, it's a lot. One is I realized this a while ago. Almost anything I need traveling, I can buy when I get to the place where I'm going. Right. So it amazes me. Like friends of mine will travel and they'll bring like they'll bring dental floss, and I'm like, you know, you could get dental floss in Cleveland. <laughs> they have it. You know, like we don't. It's not like we're hunter gatherers and we need to bring everything with us. You know, like nomads come going across the Sahara, and if we're not prepared, we die. Mm-hmm. Like you're flying from yeah Newark to Chicago. Everything they have in Newark, they have in Chicago. <laughs> so now I just don't bring that much stuff with me. And I think like, oh, if I need toothpaste, I can probably get toothpaste there. Well, a lot of hotels I, also will just give you toothpaste. Yeah. And socks. And like, I mean, literally I have friends who will spend like the night before they leave, like making sure they have packed everything. It's like, I need my passport and I need credit cards. That's kind of about it. Like a laptop is nice. Yep. Um, and something to eat on the plane. And so that's pretty much all I bring with me. I always bring. I always buy food in the terminal and bring it on the plane. I always buy food in the terminal and bring it on well, the plane. Well, what I do now, and this is also like such a sort of like L.A. vegan new age cliche. When I'm driving to the airport, I stop at Cafe Gratitude and get veggie burgers. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say when you get those? I am. Um... Do I really have to say it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, the veggie burgers are called magical. I am magical. So, yeah, so... <laughs> so I do have to say, I am at least magical. they can help you out and name it something else. You're like, do yeah. you want to know the question of the day? No. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> but I like being uncomfortable. Yeah. Like it, it's good for me. Um, so I get my little I am magicals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I bring them on the plane. So that. And I think there's also some like a little dessert that they make that I really like. Yeah. I forget what. There's great. Yeah. Um, I'm not really – my girlfriend's vegetarian, and so just sort of by default I eat a lot of vegetarian stuff, which I'm totally happy to do. We found, There's a lot of really great places in Los Angeles. 
But I know that it's a pain in the ass enough to travel to, especially to a lot of the towns that I go to in the middle of the country, you know, for to be vegetarian. But to be vegan, the places that you must go, do you? How, how do you? How do you work around? It's gotten a lot easier. Um, when I first started touring in the late '80s, early '90s, then it was challenging. Like going to the Ukraine in 1992 and trying to find vegan food. Like it just literally, unless you're like in a field digging up beets, yeah. it didn't exist. <laughs> you're just eating Oreos. Yeah. And now it's so easy. Like there are Whole Foods everywhere. There's this website, Happy Cow, that lists yeah. all the vegetarian vegan places within a city. Oh, that's good. And so I have become sort of like an accidental hunter-gatherer. So I go to a city and I already have my list of places I want to try. Oh, nice. Um, the only still airports are challenging. They're the worst. Yeah, yeah. San Francisco's like, got a vegan place. Yeah, terminals. I had breakfast there once, and it, I was like, I couldn't believe I was yeah. having like nice organic vegan food in an airport. Like I just wanted to keep buying things, even though I wasn't hungry, just yeah. to make sure <laughs> yeah, that they wouldn't yeah. go out of business. Yeah, yeah. There's some. Uh, um, where was I? Oh, I was just. I was just in a. Where oh this is a question you might know this because Wayne was on uh, was on your the, the Innocence album what's the city that the the Funny Lips are from oh it's Oklahoma Oklahoma um, City is it Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, city I yes. think so not Tulsa. No, it's Oklahoma City. Oklahoma that's City. where Flaming Lips Alley is next yeah. to the banjo museum. Yeah, so they're in there, like they're etched in a window, like the Flaming Lips are etched in a mm-hmm. window at the airport. But I found that to be a pretty nice airport. Minneapolis has a pretty nice airport. St. Louis has a good airport. Denver's airport, got a great though. airport. You have to walk a mile if you want to transfer planes in Minneapolis. This is like a good like conversation to have, say, in like forty years. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be like, yeah. Well, I like the Newark airport. The only problem is, you know, like what with my gout. Yeah. <laughs> Takes me a little while. I'm like, I was I had a transfer. See, I was flying through to to Raleigh, Durham. This old timer isn't teleport. Yeah. <laughs> you still gotta get on airplanes. Oh my god. The the, the traveling I really I really did have to get over. Cause it it was uh, I used to I used to hate it and it, that 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 was a situation where I really did have to find joy in something because I knew like this is going to be a part of my life okay. all the time. Here's another thing that I love: airport fiction. Because <laughs> like when I first started touring, I was a pretentious former philosophy major. Sure. And I was like, oh, I'm going to bring Schopenhauer on this with me. <laughs> Some light reading. And I'd fall asleep. And I was like, well, I'll bring Schopenhauer and Kant and. Trashy airport fiction. And when I realized the Schopenhauer and the Kant never got opened and the trashy airport fiction, I devoured like Oprah after a fast. And so I developed this weird love for mass market airport fiction. So now when I travel, that's my little treat is I get to read like a Lee Child book or a Harlan Coben book, like these authors. And they're so much fun. Wow. You don't really remember them when you're done with them, but they're they're great. And it'll last you, like if you're on an eight-hour flight, the book lasts you exactly <laughs> as long as the flight is. And uh, what's what's one of your particular favorites? Uh, in terms of authors, like, like well, Lee Child is great. Um, I mean, but even the New York Times gives him good reviews. Uh, Harlan Coben. Then some of the more serious guys, like Michael Connolly. He's an L.A.-based writer. This guy John Connolly from Maine. They're, they're all pretty good. I get time. I'm on. I'm on a lot of lists, so I get these weird sort of trashy sci-fi fiction books. So it's basically airport fiction, but then there are witches and. There's a lot of that. That's a subgenre. Vampires yeah, yeah. and and werewolves. And some of those are good. Some of those, I mean, like clearly, like, you know, some author in a studio apartment 
in suburban Boston sees the success of Twilight and they're like, oh, I want to do the same thing, but with were- were- werewolves. Or yeah. we- <laughs> like, this was an office romance and I just made them witches. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. I, uh, I get autobiographies as my plain read. I was hmm. uh, like, I'll read anyone's autobiography. Any good ones? Uh, so, very readable. I did the last one I read was Still Fooling Them, the Billy Crystal one. Did you read The Dirt, the Motley Crue one? I did uh, a long time ago when it came out. Uh, See, I read that when I was still drinking a lot, and it made me feel so inadequate. <laughs> I read it, I was like, I've never, like, like, I'm such a pussy compared to these guys. Yeah. They're, they were overachieving boozers. And, yeah. And I mean, how, like, one day in Motley Crue at the height of their success literally would have killed me. <laughs> but I also like how they say, though, they say, like, we partied more than probably any other band. Uh, when we were hanging out with Ozzy Osbourne, he partied more than any yeah. of us combined. But they, I mean, but Ozzy, you can sort of tell yeah. he did that. <laughs> yeah. Like, But like the Motley Crue guys, like they're all relatively coherent. They seem to be doing sort of okay. But that's really interesting to me because you just, the, the height of the the electronic music movement that butted up against glam metal mm-hmm. was the diametrical opposite presentationally it was all about i mean like they were all about the lifestyle and the party and the big fucking hair and the big it was very yeah. visual and then i remember going to see it was it, I, when i think about it it was actually kind of funny to go see a dj perform because it's really just oh, a, it's absurd it's just a guy and and the, but, yeah. i mean although you know some guys like you would see like I think I mentioned DJ Dan earlier. I mean, this is a, the guy would spin like numerous turntables, and so there was a bit of an like, oh, that's kind of cool that he's doing that. Yeah. But in general, it's very you're watching someone present a very internal mm-hmm. thing. Well, I mean, when I go on tour, sometimes I play live, and if people watch me play live, I sort of understand it because I'm doing a lot. But then I DJ and people watch, and I'm like, well, I'm not really doing that much. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's that moment in 24 Hour Party People where it just like he comes to the realization that like all these people are here and they're just watching a guy play records. Yeah, and he's like, oh, this is what's this is this is a thing. Yeah, so I do sort of. I mean, what's nice though with the way the technology is now that there is a lot of stuff you can do, like in terms of processing and looping and whatever. But I mainly do it just to entertain myself. Because otherwise, you stand there and play a record and feel like a dick. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but so you're saying about like so, like hair metal degeneracy, rave culture degeneracy, indie rock degeneracy. Like they all do have like their drug of choice, their their approach to ge- degeneracy. But I'm imagining like a Venn diagram, and where they all meet is substance abuse. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so that's the the common denominator. It's like so. I I had a night out once with Tommy Lee and Dimebag Daryl from Pantera. Oh, and we got along great because we were all just getting drunk and doing drugs. And that's, so that was the like. That's, is there a picture from that night of the three of you hanging out? I think so. That's going to be like that picture of like Pee Wee Herman, uh, David Lee Roth, and um, uh, fucking Rodney hanging. There's yeah. a picture of the three of them hanging out. I want to see a picture of that night. I think it might be. There's a Pantera video. And they they were documenting it. Oh. But the night ended at Pantera Strip Club in Dallas. Oh, fuck. And at like 5 o'clock in the morning, Daryl and Tommy Lee and I decided we were going to start a band together. <laughs> and of course, this was just like a liquor and cocaine-fueled yeah. idea, but it it would have been... That would have been crazy. Yeah. Was the strip club called Cowgirls from Hell? It should have been. I think it's yeah. called like The Clubhouse. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. That was... Vulgar so, display of prowess. So that, 
Yeah. Yeah. Vulgar display of pasties. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so that, so I know what you're saying. Like you would think that like these worlds wouldn't collide at all, but they did collide when it came to like liquor and drugs. That's really, and and I guess, you know, each, each of those genres of music is, is really kind of an expression of the drug that fuels it. Right. Like Motley Crue fucking cocaine and like, yeah, let's fucking party, you know? And then rave culture, which is just the, which I, what I perceive to be rave culture is just, you know, the, the booze and the ecstasy and you're just standing there by yourself, just vibrating and feeling really good. And then like shapes and then, (laughs) and then, you know, grunge and heroin and that, uh, you know, that kind of, I mean, it, it really is kind of an interesting, they all sort of, I never really thought about it. It was just all sort of expressions of the drugs. That and, yeah, then Pantera gets speed. And also, well, they loved Crown Royal. That was their drug of choice. So did my dad. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember, so I remember go, let, going out with them, and like that was like you had to drink. There was like the communal Crown Royal bottle, wow. and everyone drank Crown Royal. I never liked brown liquor that much because yeah. it was like cough syrup mm-hmm. and the hangovers. Yeah, it's the worst. Ooh, red wine and brown liquor, like that's the worst hangovers. But... uh where were we? So I got distracted by substance abuse. We were talking about you were talking about Dimebag Daryl and Tommy oh, Lee, and you're going to form a band. But then what was also been, been really surprising? Like I remember one of the first raves I ever played in Los Angeles. Um, one of the guys from ZZ Top came backstage, and this I was on tour with the Prodigy and Richie Houghton, and we were all backstage. And suddenly one of the ZZ Top guys shows up backstage, and none of us had ever met a famous person, and we were so nervous. But the, in the back of our minds, we were all thinking like, does he? does he know what we do? And he was fascinated with electronic music. So I think what I found over the years is like so many rock guys are fascinated with electronic music and a lot of people in the world of electronic music like myself or Skrillex come from the sort of like punk rock background. So there is a lot of surprising sort of like intergenre overlap. Yeah, because at the, at the, I I guess it's easy to think of people in terms of being of these one-dimensional entities and but at the core of it, you go no, no. They're artists, and they're you know like they picked a thing that they liked, but that doesn't mean that they don't draw from other sources or yeah. are kind of go, hey, what's happening in that yard over there? I mean, that's not. I guess it really does sort of to hear all that doesn't you know when you really think of it, it's not really that surprising that you guys all essentially do the same thing. You're just expressed in different ways. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have a question for you guys, and I don't know if you can answer honestly. Sure. Um, I was going to ask two questions. Who? Two parts of the same question. What guests have you had who've been terrible and who's been good? No one's been um what there was only there's only been one guest that was that was kind of difficult to navigate. Not really so much through his own fault. And we've we've actually and we've talked about this on, on the podcast before, but um uh but Harrison Ford was kind of um tough to navigate. Well I've I remember seeing him being interviewed on David Letterman a while ago and his shtick was that he didn't say anything. Like he was so uncomfortable being interviewed. Yeah. And David Letterman kept ridiculing him for this. He yeah. Well, and he's funny on Conan. He's on Conan because Conan yeah. will make him kind of goof off, and that's what we were hoping. I for. thought. I thought it was a. I, I and 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 we all. I crumbled, which I'm not really prone to doing, just because I've done this a lot. But it just. You know, I freaked out because it was him, and and I just got star. I just got starstruck because he's so buried deep in my. The only other time I got that starstruck was like, like working with the Muppets. You know, or I'm like, ah, you know, like when something oh. that's that buried in your childhood. Two bits of Muppet trivia. Yes. One, I met Jim Henson right before he died. Oh. I think, or soon before he died, in uh, Westchester County, New York. My then girlfriend and I 
went to a party and of course I was very, very drunk and I didn't know where we were. And it turns out we were in Jim Henson's house. And so at like two o'clock in the morning, I'm drunk in the kitchen and I look up and Jim Henson is standing there. And I was just like, I what? How is this even possible? Like we're in a weird suburban house in Westchester, New York. And it turns out he was the dad of the guy having the party. Oh, wow. Uh, Brian? I think so. Brian Henson? Maybe. That's, that, an, that's amazing. So, so that's my, my <laughs> accidental Jim Henson story. The other is I have some friends who work on the Muppets in New York. Mm-hmm. And I hope I'm not getting anyone in trouble. It is a rite of passage to have sex in Snuffleupagus. (laughs) (laughs) I think you just got everybody in trouble. That is not where I thought that was going. Yeah. Apparently, it's like when they have their holiday party, people have sex in Snuffleupagus. Allegedly. Yeah. Hey, bird. Well, you know, because if you're having sex, uh, no one can see it. Yeah. That's (laughs) And And big enough, like... Two people can fit in. Yeah. Yep. So, okay, so Harrison Ford was awkward. New goal, and the the goal is to have sex inside Harrison Ford. If you can have sex inside Harrison Ford. Um, Yeah, no, and and it turned out, um, you know, when I say it wasn't really entirely his fault... He does this character of the cranky guy, mm-hmm. but he's also kind of the cranky guy, but he thinks it's he thinks the uncomfortable moments are really fun. Like he really likes the uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. like what you saw on Letterman, part of that might be, have been him being uncomfortable with himself, but I think he also relishes like he just kind of likes that. He but sort of feeds off those uncomfortable moments. Charles Grodin was so much better at that on talk shows though. Well, Charles Grodin's a, a, a mm. com- like has a comedy yeah. and he also was he would do that that sigh. Yeah. You know, that, <sighs> like that just he just the world is too much for him and everyone's dumber than he is. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so in the end it, it it turned out that the episode I thought the episode was a complete disaster and I was devastated for a long time be- and I didn't even want to put it out but I knew like I got to put it out it's Harrison you Ford. You should use sound effects like just like crickets. <laughs> donkey I've, sounds. Your brain yeah. would fill those in. But it, it uh but it actually in the end it, it it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Like it actually was. It was actually okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it. And I'm grateful for the experience because it taught me. It, I really kind of. I thought I had done this so much that I, you know, like how many great lessons am I really gonna? I mean, you always kind of learn some, but I always felt like yeah, I kind of got this figured out. But it really taught me how to not be afraid of the person that I'm talking to because once you're mm-hmm. afraid, and you know, like if you're a performer, once you're afraid on stage, it's like being a circus trainer. Yeah, yeah. Once, yeah. once, yeah. The, once the animals the, smell that you're afraid, it's over because mm-hmm. they're not going to respect you. And, and then they don't it's like Siegfried and Roy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then yes, yeah, so Harrison Ford chomps on your neck and takes you off stage, and you're like, "But he was trying to protect me," and they're like, "Now he wanted to eat your face." Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so Harrison Ford was really the only difficult one, and I fault myself for a lot of that uh, for just nerding out too much. But in general, everyone's been really cool in almost 500 episodes. 500. Almost 500. So in this little room. Not uh, all in this room. So five hundred people. But there's some really amazing. Yeah, like that's a lot of people. There are people that are amazing, and you know they're going to be amazing, like Tom Hanks. But then there are other people, like Paul Williams. Oh, Paul Williams! Where you Don't go? Even get me started on Paul Williams. I'm such a huge Paul Williams fan. He wrote the Rainbow Connection. He wrote Rainbow yes. Connection, and he told an amazing story about when Having they were sex and snuffle up. They had sex and snuffle up again, and then, but it just how they were writing Rainbow Connection. And they had everything but the but they had everything but the but the lyrical hook of the song, and so, you know, he and Jim, he said he and Jim Henson they were there, and it's in in I guess in they were trying to work they were working on it, and you know it's and his I guess Paul's girlfriend or someone came in and 
He was like, oh, we're almost there. It's just like, we're trying to find this. Someday we'll find it. And he was like, we're just trying to find like a connection to a rainbow, but I don't. we don't know what it is. And she was like, rainbow connection? Mm-hmm. They were like, oh my God. Yeah. But he, you That's know, like any of those movies about and then they did Say that one more time. And then they did a few more lines of Coke. And then, <laughs> and then, and, and and then they found it. And then they got in Snuffleupagus. Then they Lepagus. found the rainbow connection inside Snuffleupagus. Yeah. But it, uh, but you know, Having people like that on that I definitely respect, but I don't know what to expect, mm-hmm. and then finding out they're amazing people, um, it, like those those are the ones that I really like flip out over. And I'll, okay, so I have another question. Um, uh, how do I ask this? Okay, has anyone um, farted in here during an interview? Because it seems like it's such a small and closed space. I mean, granted, I know again podcasts are not a visual sure. medium, but there's like an air filter sure, thing sure, sure. over there. But like. Okay, so one time I was going to an award show, something or other, and I was with my girlfriend at the time and my manager, and we were, it was freezing cold in New York City, and we were in a car service, and I farted a little bit. <laughs> and it was one of those ones where you're like, no one's going to notice, but it was horrible, like, like as if someone had like taken like a bag of rotten lobsters, <laughs> hid, it, hid it behind a radiator for like a month, and then... Like emptied it out at low tide. Like it was just <laughs> terrible, 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 terrible. And clearly everyone knew what had happened, but it was like five degrees outside, so we couldn't put the windows Ooh. down. So you just had to so ride just it sat out. There like, yeah. oh. Uh, Steve Jones from the Steve Sex Jones Puzzles. was fucking great. But he yeah, farted. He's... Oh, he did fart. Yeah, yeah. It was lava proud. It wasn't it didn't smell. Yeah. But it's charming when he does it. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Everything he does is charming. Just like hit on a girl and fart at the same time because yeah. he's Steve Jones. Uh, we also just had Thomas Dolby on, who was fantastic. Mm-hmm. He didn't fart. Not did not fart, fart. But he was fantastic. Because in here, like, you couldn't get away with, like, if you're doing, like, if you're on, like, a TV set where there's, like, a lot of square footage and you yeah, farted, yeah, yeah. like, oh, it would dissipate. Like, you know, yeah, what, but uh, here, one of those laws of thermodynamics, like, gas rapidly expands yeah. to We're going to, it'll but. happen, but then no one's going to know. Then there's that weird thing of, like, do you acknowledge it or do you let it go? You say it's kind <laughs> but I, th- I think that we've evolved on some sort of like olfactory level. Like we know who farted. <laughs> like there's no doubt. De- like it's like even if you don't know, you can't like pinpoint. You're like like something. Like you look. You're like oh, it was that person. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. like you you you. It's just disgusting. Like you smell their DNA encoded <laughs> in the. Fart. And there's also a little bit of a fart Doppler. Yeah, where you can sort of sense yeah. it's coming from that general direction, so then yeah, we like, would know it like was we, Katie. Yeah, we instantly understand. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Katie! Yeah, no when, one, when in doubt, blame Katie. No one, no one did it here. I'm looking up uh, who else. Uh, who else? Oh, John Lithgow was fucking phenomenal. I mean, I, that one was that one was sort of expected, though. Uh, he was pretty great, and, and you know, no one, no one has been, no one has been really out of 500 people. Because you would think, I mean, because public figures generally are like equal parts like insecure and narcissistic yeah and generally a lot of public figures i find are not very good at dealing with themselves in a light-hearted manner like here's, people here's what we found though is that it's since it's not a short form interview we have a long runway oh this is like the hugo chavez <laughs> speech of interview you know like <laughs> we have a lot of runway to really get into a conversation with people and the and the podcast this format to me is sort of like it's like a coffee chat that you have with someone that you've just met that you find interesting and you mm-hmm. want to learn more about them. And I think yeah. when, when people when people come on, they um, and even if they're a little defensive in the beginning, they understand that we're nice. And I, you know, I've done enough bad interviews in my career to be very sensitive to make sure that 
it feels more like a conversation and that people aren't threatened and that we're it's a sa- it's kind of a safe zone to chat. Yeah. And and I think everyone kind of senses that and they kind of just let the guard down and go okay. And then, you know, and once you start mm-hmm. talking about things that people are interested in, they open up, you know, yeah. instead of the same like what was it like to be in this or play that thing? And then you have your stock answers, and, you and know. who have been some of the really intim- like intimidating ones? Like if you had Werner Herzog that would here. Be, that would be intense. I, well, oh, um, can, I, can I tell you a Werner Herzog please. story? Please. Okay, so I got invited. And I know I'm not supposed to talk about it, but I got invited to this event. Um, and Neil Armstrong spoke. And it was the most amazing thing. He was speaking we're outside and he was talking about space and when he started talking about the moon the moon appeared behind him over the horizon like it came up just over the horizon a full moon like it was like his lost dog hearing the master's voice yeah (laughs) um so that was amazing but then we're having dinner and Werner Herzog was there oh this I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this but it was really amazing so he's there with his like amazing wife who's like a 35 year old Russian philosopher and she doesn't say anything. So all through dinner, we're just sitting, talking. She's completely quiet. And somehow the conversation goes towards everyone's talking about what to do if you're attacked. Like what to do, you know, some, talking about being attacked and like, oh, well, you run or you kick or you do something. And then Werner Herzog's wife, who hasn't said anything for hours, out of nowhere says, if you're attacked, menstruate everywhere. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> And there's this pause, and we all kind of look at her, and she just sits back and doesn't say anything. <laughs> at will? And that was the only thing that she said. Like, so when you're attacked, menstruate everywhere. I love that she can do that on command. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Speeds up time. Hang on. <laughs> have you seen Have you seen um, the fake Werner Herzog reading, doing Curious George? <laughs> no. Was that Paul Tompkins did that? I don't know who did it, but it's it's on the internet machine. Yeah. And if you just Google Werner Herzog, Curious George, it's why... They invented the internet. It's someone doing a perfect Werner Herzog voice doing their interpretation of Curious George. Oh, man. Like, this is what happens when you take an instrument of chaos out of the primordial jungle. <laughs> yeah, that's it. This is George. He lived in an obscene, overwhelming jungle the is <coughs> norm. And also, he could not help it. He was a murderer, too. <laughs> Still, he was a good little monkey and always very curious. One day, an intruder from society appeared in the jungle. What a nice little monkey, he thought. I would like to take him home with me. He put his hat on the ground, and George is lured out of hiding by the hat. An alien trinket of unimaginable culture. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's false. So I don't know who made it. It's up there with you. And you saw like the G.I. Joe infomercials, right? Yes. 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 The old G.I. Joe. Joe, G.I. You've never seen the the fake ones? The fake ones? No, no, but like, uh, like the body, guy bo- body massage. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Body yeah. massage machine. Yeah, yeah those are those are like classic yeah. internet. That's like, pre YouTube. I'm, I'm just saying, like, but these are things that might have like you might have missed over the years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. That's a, that guy ended up working, uh, I think, like on uh, Tom Goes to the Mayor and stuff like that. Well, um, and speaking of the internet machine, what about um, another old meme from a few years ago? The fake guitar solos. Oh, the best. Uh-huh. Like oh, the Eddie yeah. Van Halen. <laughs> Because I, the yeah. first time I saw, first couple times I saw it, I was like, "Is this real?" Because he had done such a good job. I think it was Carlos Santana, and it was so bad, like just so uncomfortable. <laughs> but like, but not glaringly, obviously bad, just bad, just ar- like artistically terrible. And the subtle, the restraint involved in that. 
<laughs> really, the internet yeah. has made all our I lives so stuff. much better. So yeah. just to, to to wrap things up and to answer okay, your to, previ- to previous sum up, question, so we have brain architecture. We had brain architecture. We had. Did you ever play with? Did you ever work with Prince since you, no, you came around? Okay, no. you never worked I, with one Prince? of my dreams in terms of collaborating because I've worked with a lot of my heroes. Yeah, but I really want to make an album with Prince that's nothing but like slow romantic music. Oh, that's be great. Like, I like his up-tempo stuff. It's fine, but it's it's the songs like of Purple Rain, like the slow, the beautiful ones, yeah. the beautiful ones. Oh, it's a fucking amazing song! And even Purple Rain, like his ballads are so good. And I just wish you'd do more of them. So I really want to make like an old sounding like R and B romantic slow record with Prince. That would be, be that, that would be pretty that would be amazing. So um, I was uh, I was a little intimidated by Neil Gaiman, who turned out to be wonderful. Um, I was yep. intimidated by Oliver Stone because I just didn't know how he was going to come I- at me, uh, but that turned out fine. Yeah. Uh, I was very nervous about you, actually, because really? I've never s- really seen you speak a lot, so I didn't know what it- I didn't know what to what to expect. Hmm. But um, it's been a huge disappointment. It's right? been a, it's been <laughs> yeah. fucking fantastic. Hmm. It's been fantastic. Um, and I feel like uh, I don't know. I feel like we talked about a lot of stuff that you know maybe most people don't know. Most don't, people don't know about you. Is it? Is it? Is it? You've done a million and a half interview interviews mm-hmm. and chats and stuff. What is it? What is your experience like with this sort of thing? Uh, my experience is that one of the biggest variables is I'm all in favor of people not speaking English, but it makes doing an interview really challenging if you're talking <laughs> to someone who doesn't speak English. Yes, oh. yes, and yes. that or like sometimes you'll be in. I don't know, let's say France, and you'll meet a French journalist who speaks enough English to sort of phrase a question. Mm -hmm. But then it's like if you've ever dated someone where English isn't their first language, like there's never that comfortable language, like shared familiarity. You can't go too fast. Yeah. And you can't just blah, 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 blah. You can't make, you know, there's no frame of reference. So that is for me one of the hardest things about doing interviews is when you're doing like press in a hotel room in a place where they don't speak English. And again, if I'm in France, they shouldn't speak English because it's France. And right. Fr- like, I should speak French, but it makes it very awkward. But when you have, like, people who clearly, like, grew up listening to the same records yeah. in roughly the same places, even though, like, Connecticut and Honolulu are pretty far away from each other. Yeah. It's like... Still, we still saw Ray Capo perform. Yeah. Actually, Ray... So... Because Ray's from Connecticut. Yeah. Um, so he was in Youth of Today. Yes. But originally, he was in a band called Violent Children. Um, when I was in this band, Vatican Commandos. Yeah. And one of, we all played a show together at a prep school, Choate Rosemary Hall in Connecticut. Wow. But the person who was booking the show, we had to all change our names because <laughs> like I was in Vatican Commandos, they were violent children. There was this other band, Reflex from Pain. So we all had to come up with like gentle names. <laughs> so Reflex from Pain became Reflections of Poetry. Wow. I, violent children, I think became like, um, vindic- like victorious children. Yeah. So that was one of my first experiences with Ray wow, in like 1981 great. or 82. Because I'm because of... I'm very old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I see him all the time because now he teaches yoga and he's a vegan and he's yeah a... him and uh, 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 Purcell they both mm-hmm. like do yoga stuff now. Yeah. They, uh, I, uh, Ray Capo came to Hawaii to play with Better Than a Thousand, which was this kind of revival band. 80s yep. hardcore revival band, and then the show got canceled. Then I just had to show him around Hawaii, yep. and then ha- heard him complain about the band Lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very enlightened of him. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, do you as we're as we're kind of wrapping this up because uh, so we can let you go. I just got the sign that we have to oh. wrap you. Um, 
Did they? Did they? Does Does he need? To, oh, I guess you have places to. <laughs> would you have places to be other than just sitting in a comic book store all day? I, I've got Facebook to check. You have Facebook. Uh, to, do you have all, all your, your profiles? profiles? Yeah. Um, did uh, do you feel like? Because you sort of, you know, you sort of uh, self-deprecatingly said, "Oh, I'm an asshole inside." Do you Do you still believe that, or do you feel like you overcame that, or do you feel like you grapple with it, or how did you? Yeah, I mean, I. It's tricky. I do think that, I mean, if I look back at my behavior, like even if I've had good intentions, I've been kind of an asshole at times. Um, you know, sort of opinionated, contentious, um, cranky. And, but then there's that question we were talking about earlier. It's like, where does it come from? You know, and like I have some friends who just sort of like self-identify as assholes. You know, they're like, that's who they are. That's their character. And that makes it okay. And they're not willing to sort of like maybe look into see like how it's a defense mechanism for something else. Whereas right. me, like when I'm – if I'm being like a really argumentative, angry douchebag, I have to take a step back and say like, okay, where is this coming from? You know, and again, not to be all self-involved and therapized, but it's it's an – it certainly makes friendships and relationships a lot easier when I'm not just being argumentative and cranky all the time. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. I think that's a nice, I think that's a nice dismount on the podcast. And <laughs> people should go to um, the in- Innocence is out. Sure. Uh, on uh, Little Idiot Records. Little that's Yeah. Well, so in 1991 or 92, I was going to do a TV show with my manager. He wasn't going to be on the TV show. Okay. And it was a really tacky TV show. Like some like dance fever type show. But I was such a media slut, like I would just do anything. And he's German and laconic and very funny. And he looked at me and he was like, well, if you are going to be a little idiot and just do everything that's offered to you. And I just started laughing and laughing. And I was like, so henceforth, all my professional, like my publishing company, it's all called Little Idiot. Because that's, that's awesome. me. I'm little and I'm not very smart. <laughs> People can also go to MobyLosAngelesArchitecture.com yep. to look at your architecture blog. Oh, and then I have a weird website called MobyGratis.com. Okay. Where I, I give free music away to indie filmmakers and film students and nonprofits. That's awesome. Um, and then I just did something with BitTorrent where I took all the stems from the most recent album, Innocence, and gave those away for free. Nice. Like anyone can. Wow. It's, uh, yeah, my... My goal professionally is to be as stupid and make as little money as possible. <laughs> <laughs> or is it just to get your stuff out as much as possible? It's that weird, fantastic, democratic chaos of the internet where, like, you make something, you put it out into the world, and you have no idea what's going to happen. Like, yeah. it might be ignored, it might be embraced, but, like, the least interesting thing is to try and, like, control it and monetize it. You know, so I feel like it's just more interesting. Like, make something you love, put it out there. See and what happens. Have no idea. No, no, make no effort to control it whatsoever. That's very hard to do. I mean, emotionally, that's hard for a lot of people. I guess it's not to keep rambling on. I know you guys are like fine. Like no, the, no, no, like it's the fine. One, the one interviewee who like wouldn't leave. No, we're just like being sudden, respectful of your time. If you oh, if you want to talk, you can talk. But watching other people make mistakes. Something like, for example, like one thing that helps me stay sober is going to bars at two o'clock in the morning. Seeing drunk people, yeah. So when I see like sloppy drunk people, I'm like, oh, that was me for a couple of decades, and it's it's awful. But when I see musicians desperately trying to control the way their music is like heard or distributed or sold, it just the more they try and control it, the more distasteful it seems to me. And so I'm just like, oh, okay. So clearly, I shouldn't be trying to do that. Like it's so much more interesting if you just sort of embrace 
the weird chaotic status quo of the internet and just sort of you know, let things be chaotic. Yeah, that's why I like that Bandcamp site, Bandcamp.com, mm-hmm. where it's like they bands could just upload it, and it has all the interface to be able to just pay whatever you want or just take it for free. Yeah, and yeah, I really, I, I love that. Like appeal to people's best nature. Like you want it for free. Like I'd much rather have someone listen to my music and not pay for it than be prevented from listening to it by not being able to pay for yeah, it. Yeah, free podcasts. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. We want more people to hear and then hopefully enjoy it rather than like, I'm going to make a couple bucks. Yeah. <laughs> but at a certain point, we should probably make a couple bucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we're good. We're good. We we raise the, the ceiling got an the inch. quilt on nice. the wall. It's, it's not, yeah, that quilt's pretty, I mean, that, yeah, that's a, that, that costs we, something. Yeah. <laughs> Man hours. <clears throat> enjoy your burrito, everybody. And see. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the way back machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts